Well, hello. Thanks for stopping by. And uh, welcome to Dharma Punks New York. And I'm Josh. Yeah, and for those who would like to support my work as a Buddhist pastor, which is entirely funded by just uh, donations only for the teaching and the counseling is um, you can Venmo Dharma Punks with an X NYC and or uh, the PayPal button is on the Dharma Punks NYC dot com site as well as the podcast site so thanks for that uh, for your support so tonight's talk is on dread uh, why is it by the way that uh, people so love watching horror movies I know I do when we are uh, watching a movie like The Shining and it is activating the sympathetic nervous system the terror or fear activates the mobilized state of the nervous system, and that in turn releases both adrenaline, dopamine, and endorphins. And uh, those in and of themselves actually feel pretty good when they're released. So sustained uh, anticipation of watching a character go down into a basement where a serial killer lurks in and of itself. It can be fun if it's a movie and you're not actually living in that experience. But in real life, we do experience times of dread and sustained anxiety. And so that is tonight's topic. When dread doesn't feel good, when it's not just a movie, but when it's real life. So what is dread, by the way? Well, it's the sense or the anticipation that a emotionally or physically painful event is imminent, paired with an unwillingness to face the experience, even though it feels inevitable that something bad will happen. Dread is very, of course, similar to anxiety, but in dread, there's rather than general anxiety, there's to a degree a sense of what kind of threat might be present, as well as it uh, very often can lead to a greater state of immobilization, whereas anxiety can simply be something that mobilizes us into very fast, agitated states. So once again, dread is the anticipation of that an emotionally unpleasant event is inevitable, imminent, paired with, at the same time, a uh, unwillingness to experience it. So some examples of dread uh, that we see in culture, uh, one of my favorites, Silence of the Lambs, the great scene where Jodie Foster is alone in the lair of the serial killer Buffalo Bill. The lights are out. She can't see, but Buffalo Bill is wearing night vision goggles so he can see her. And we see the entire scene of her flailing around in the dark from the perspective of the killer. Uh, and we don't know when he'll strike, but we do know that the scene will have some kind of violent conclusion. So that is certainly an example of an attempt to induce dread. Another favorite dread scene in movies for me is in the movie Goodfellas, Joe Pesci, a very violent character in that film who out of the blue turns normal conversations into violent murders where suddenly he'll pull out a gun and shoot someone out of anger at something they said. So subsequently in each scene that Joe Pesci's in, we have a sense of dread that something bad may happen. People can have 
dread making an appointment with a doctor, dread when a supervisor, boss, or a, a relationship partner says they want to have a talk with us. Dread can be activated with a simple feeling that something really bad is going to happen to someone in our life and so forth. Why do we have dread? Well, the brain by evolutionary design doesn't ac accurately depict the world. In fact, uh, accurately depicting the world plays not as important a uh, role in survival as you might expect. In fact, in um, perceptual clinical psychology show just how little we have of an accurate representation of the world around us. The role of the brain is actually to highlight present threats and opportunities, as well as to predict outcomes that will affect our survival. So in that way, we see already the groundwork for dread being laid. Uh, given what's called negativity bias, the fact that to survive our species like all mammals highlights the bad and the evolutionary import of maintaining the anticipation of threats, dread and anxiety are far more common states than sustained excitement and positive anticipations. The expectations of painful events is almost invariably based on previous life experiences. We dread, as Winnicott, the great uh, developmental psychologist, noted, we dread what we've already experienced. People who early on in life experienced the sudden death of attachment figures or family members will very often dread something happening to attachment figures in adult life. People who've been suddenly abandoned or had caregivers become emotionally depressed or dysregulated, have a dread that those events will reoccur. In fact, it's very uncommon in my counseling to meet anyone who actively dreads something that they haven't actually experienced. And of course, the irony of that, that we only really dread what we've already experienced, is that we fear things that we've actually survived already. But that idea doesn't seem to ever come into play. We simply, uh, because we've experienced painful events in the past and because they remain emotionally unresolved, we expect them to happen again. The brain is an expectation machine, as so many neuropsychologists have noted, and what it experiences, it expects to happen again. This is exactly how, for example, placebos work. If I take a pill that I believe is a painkiller, even if it's just filled with sugar, uh, it's a placebo, because in my past, painkillers, aspirin, analgesics have worked, I will expect the painkiller to work, I'll stop paying attention to the physical sensations of pain, and I'll start paying attention to other sensations that are not painful. In other words, it distracts my attention away from monitoring the pain. And so in many ways, the expectation of how things should be are just as, if not more painful than actual painful events. And uh, uh, things that we expect to be pleasant will create pleasant sensations in the body and will feel better even before something good happens. Um, expectations are largely expressed uh, through right hemispheric bottom-up means, which means um, when we're in a state of dread, it's primarily based on somatic markers, the front of the body, tightening of chest muscles, stomach muscles, throat, clenching of jaws, and so forth. Uh, the right brain also activates very simple repetitive thoughts like, I'm not going to get out of here, I'm not going to survive, uh, something terrible is going to happen. 
right brain bottom up actions tend to um, also disorient attention. It's very difficult for us to relax and settle our attention. They we become hyper vigilant, and of course, the right hemisphere is uh, very prone to through associative. Uh, circuitry bring up very unpleasant repressed images from the past. So painful images at times can also be present during dread. Um, in addition to being an expectation machine, the brain, uh, so whatever we expect, the brain will uh, look to find what's called evidence that confirms these beliefs, confirmation bias. If I really believe that uh, I expect a situation to be unpleasant, I will not go into it with a neutral appreciation, looking for different sensations and evaluate. I will actually, my uh, right cingulate will focus my attention looking for unpleasant external stimuli that will validate the anticipation. So it's unfortunate, but people with early life traumas who experience severe events, loss of caregivers or uh, sexual impropriety or violence um, can have deeply ingrained within their right amygdala the ongoing anticipation that these events will reoccur because at those early ages, the left hemisphere is not actually working. There's very little contextual uh, information stamped on it. And the right uh, amygdala believes these terrible events are still happening in our adult life. Um, also, the circuitry, the very circuitry of the brain, I've been sort of a, a amateur neuro, studier of neuropsychology for the last 20 years, ever since I was, um, uh, after a retreat in the year 2000, I had developed some questions about how the how the circuitry of the brain worked, and I started reading, and I've never stopped. And one of the interesting things about how dread and anxiety works is that we have both what's known as explicit memories, memories we can recall at will, but we also have what some people call, recall, call hidden memories or implicit memories, memories that we cannot recall on purpose, but they can still affect our bodies, our moods, our state of mind. So implicit or hidden memories um, that cannot be consciously accessed, why do we have them? Why do we have these hidden memories? Well, uh, when we have uh, Fairbairn and other psychologists note that when we have really unpleasant experiences early on, a caregiver acts in a very scary way, or we experience a near-death situation, or uh, some unpleasant event happens, the uh, emotional pain is overwhelming to the child, and the mind essentially immediately goes apart about compartmentalizing, protecting the, the functioning of consciousness from being overwhelmed, so it creates the unconscious, these unpleasant events create uh, an unconscious implicit realm where events that would be too traumatic to recall are held. And unfortunately, uh, if it was simply that was it, nothing would happen, the, the memories would go away or would not would be dormant. It would be fine, but unfortunately, it doesn't work that way, of course. Uh, latent unconscious memories are still very, very active in the right amygdala. And when anything in the present reminds us of these experiences, 
it will trigger the same emotions that we felt during the original traumatic event. So someone who has experienced um, the loss of an important figure early on in life, when they uh, experience a friend uh, disconnecting or a new partner not responding to texts, the similarity will activate the repressed hidden memories and they'll start to experience some of the same fear and terror as the, they would have when they were a child. So uh, also uh, the amygdala gets first glance at all incoming sensations. It's not a very, uh, refined part of the brain. In fact, it's very crude. So it's very easy for the amygdala to mistake a crackling sound in the woods for a predator or um, mistake a stick on the ground for a snake. And as well, it's very easy for it to mistake um, uh, an unreturned text as a sign that we are being socially excluded like we were in third grade. So the amygdala, the right amygdala especially, is easily activated. And unfortunately, moreover, unconscious, uh, implicit fear memories are stored in multiple pathways that connect the amygdala to the temporal lobe in the cortex. And so the more these memories are encoded and supported by multiple wirings, the more resilient they are to change. They're very, they can be extinguished, but they're very resilient by nature. Unconscious memories that are especially fear memories are what's called state dependent, which means the the mood, the state of arousal, the situation that we were originally in, if we experience it again as an adult, the same mood, the same particular state of arousal, the same place, the same time of day, the same uh, clothing we're wearing, the same temperature, uh, anything that creates a similarity of states, will then reactivate the memories. So they're very, 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 again, easy. It's very easy to accidentally or sheer coincidence trigger a state of apprehension, uh, unpleasant anticipation and dread, the more we've had unresolved traumas in our life. So, um, on another uh, note about dread, we have what's called cognitive dread, where most of the time people will try to avoid something that is associated with anxiety. That's called avoidance coping. But sometimes if the dread feels or the thing we're dreading feels very imminent, uh, for example, getting a diagnosis, having a uh, an unpleasant conversation with a parent or relational partner or boss, um, we will experience more pain in the anticipation of the event than even during the event. Gregory Burns at uh, Emory University said that the dread one feels before an injection or a tooth extraction activates the exact same circuitry in the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex and shows the exact same similar markers of skin veil. And so by all intents and purposes, dread is very often just as emotionally unpleasant as a real terrifying experience. And given our mirror neurons, we can also empathetically feel dread for other people as well. That's how scary movies work. Given how unpleasant dread can be, we have what's called negative time preference. Now, what the hell is that negative time preference? Well, if we really believe the experience that we're dreading is unavoidable, imminent, inevitable, and, you know, and therefore cannot be escaped, 
we prefer to actualize the pain as soon as possible rather than to delay it because we know how uncomfortable the anticipation of the pain is. In trials, people who anticipated a painful event of a mild shock will the, mo the vast majority of the time uh, move the shock as soon as possible to get it over with rather than postpone it for five minutes to prepare themselves. They'll just say, damn it, I'll just, just give me the shock now. I don't want to sit around waiting for it. And 28% of the time, people find dread to be so intolerable that they say, look, you can give me a shock that's far worse if you give it to me now rather than waiting five minutes for me to get a shock that I don't know how it's going to feel. So even knowing we're going to get a worse shock, we'll still choose it if it moves it forward in time. That's the degree to which we find uh, dread, the active state of not knowing when an unpleasant event will occur, um, is. Um, so, uh, the, we develop uh, what could be called maladaptive defense mechanisms to protect ourselves from the emotional pain and anxiety of dread. Um, so, on the one hand, we actualize the event as soon as possible if we believe it's imminent, or if we don't believe it's imminent, we'll do our darnness to avoid the experience, which unfortunately has its own problems. Um, if we keep on avoiding situations that uh, induce dread or negative anticipations, we never actually resolve the unconscious implicit memories. And over time, the dread becomes is fired more often. The basal lateral amygdala believes that more stimuli or misinterprets more stimuli and will feel more dread. Anxiety doesn't abate when we avoid unpleasant situations. Anxiety grows worse. Classic example, we fall off a bike. We don't get back on a bike. We think, I'll just wait a week before I, get, I ride my bike again. Well, by the time we wait a week and try to get back on the bike, of course, the basal lateral amygdala has noticed we're avoiding bike riding and we'll decide, well, it's terrifying. It's actually a real threat and it'll become even scarier. The person who uh, gets fired from a job and decides never to walk on the same block where their company was because they don't want to run into any of their work colleagues eventually will not only avoid that block, they'll avoid the entire neighborhood because the things we avoid, the basal lateral amygdala mistakes as being very vastly dangerous threats and it continuously grows. Furthermore, the failure to metabolize the emotions associated with unpleasant anticipations means we never resolve the underlying issue at heart. Now, fortunately for us, there is what's called memory reconsolidation and ex memory extinction. So even though the mechanisms of anxiety and dread are largely implicit, unconscious memories that cannot be actively uh, recalled and are therefore very difficult in cognitive behavioral therapies to address. On the other hand, there are ways that we can extinguish or at least minimize the dread and anxiety that are activated. How do we do that, you might ask? And for the low cost of 1995, but no, I'm just kidding. Um, so, Memory reconsolidation. Well, as we know from the work of Ledoux and so many other great neuropsychologists, um, when the circuits that activate dread and anxiety, when we're experiencing dread and anxiety, that means the circuits that hold the unconscious memories are actually active at that moment. So, 
for instance, somebody who's actively afraid that their relationship partner is going to abandon them at that very moment, the memories, the unconscious memories that hold all those trace wounding events of past abandonments stemming all the way back to childhood are active. And it turns out that while a memory circuit is active, that's the one time you can change it. You have to wait until it's it's actually firing. And then that's the one time you can actually begin to change. Every time we recall a memory, whether consciously or unconsciously, the circuits are now active, which means the neurons are actually being signaled by other neurons and they're creating a active circuit, neural circuit in the brain. And at that very moment, we can actually begin the process of changing how we respond and, and thus changing the memory itself. So the way it normally happens is when something uh, activates anxiety in me or anyone else, the normal response that's not very skillful is we get, we something triggers us, we start to get nervous, maybe it's uh, giving a talk in public, maybe it's driving on a highway, maybe it's uh, going up to, you know, uh, heights, or maybe it's um, going on a date, whoever, whatever situation triggers it. And then we get anxious, and then we look around for threats. We try to figure out why we're anxious, and we don't pay attention to the fact that in so doing, we're keeping our attention very busy. That activates the sympathetic nervous system, and that means that our heart rate goes up, our breathing uh, rate goes up. And so we're reconditioning or reestablishing that, that memory is still frightening and still warrants a threat state. But what happens if when I'm anxious and or when I'm in a state of dread, I actually do the exact opposite? I, instead of looking around for threats, instead of uh, focusing my attention on the repetitive thoughts, I'm, I'm not going to make it, I'm going to fall apart, blah, 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 blah. What happens if instead I purposely change my body, I relax my belly, I take long, soothing exhalations. I pull back and drop my shoulders. What happens if I essentially start to titrate? I walk slower. I decelerate my movements. I limit what can enter my attention. And I keep my awareness on relaxing my body. Well, now I've re-encoded that memory, that unconscious memory, with all this new information, now that memory over time doesn't activate states of anxiety anymore. It's over time. If I keep doing that, it will simply trigger states of ease. So I'm re-encoding the memory with a new body state, a new breathing state, a new way I'm focusing my attention and so forth. Literally every time a memory is active, it's re-encoded with how we re respond to it when it's active. So if every time something unpleasant, when an unpleasant memory comes up, we react by tensing, breathing faster, looking around for threats, then we're essentially re integrating or re-consolidating uh, that memory is terrifying. But if we purposely go into the situations that activate terror or anxiety, but we change the way we physiologically respond, we keep our breath slow, focusing on the exhalation, we soften the lower vagal nerve by softening the belly, opening up the chest. We even put a smile on our face, even though we don't feel like smiling, whatever. We change the body sensation. Then what happens is all of that information is now reconsolidated with the memory. And we now have an entirely over time with practice, different relationship. We're less anxious. Now let's um, uh, 
Also, we focus attention on soothing predictable sensations in our environment. So when we're in a state of anxiety, instead of looking around, uh, focusing attention on our thoughts, we find the most relaxing sensation in the environment. We rest our gaze on it. We look at the uh, signs of nature. We look for a friendly face. We look at a, for a piece of art, or we simply listen to sounds that are pleasant. Then again, resting our attention re-encodes the unconscious emotional memory. Now, we see all this actually being mentioned in the core suttas of the Dharma. In fact, there's a wonderful sutta by the, of course, teachings of the Buddha called the Baya Bharava, uh, which is the dread sutta. <laughs> Some people uh, translate it as the fear and terror, but it's also translated as the, the dread sutta. And the Buddha talks about how much dread uh, he would experience when he would go off and practice alone in the forests where there would be um, predators, where he would be alone, uh, subject to bandits and all kinds of difficult situations. I'm just going to read a little bit of the sutta, which is actually very long, but um, we're just going to focus on uh, the Buddhist solutions and we'll see how similar they are to fear extinction. So the Buddha says, um, I would practice in the sort of isolated, scary places that make your hair stand on end. And in fact, in the um, Pali Canon, the Buddhist teachings from 2,500 years ago, that phrase, make your hair stand on end and frightening places is a very common theme because uh, monks would practice out in the jungles. Um, the Buddha goes on to say that wild animals would appear, twigs would fall, the wind would rustle the leaves, and he said, over time, terror would set in. So he's in a state of dread. And then he goes on, a thought would occur to me, why do I keep waiting for fear and responding to it the same way? What if in whatever state I'm in, when fear and terror come to me, I was to soothe myself in that very state. So if fear came to me while I was walking back and forth, I would not sit, stand or sit suddenly or lie down. I would continue walking, but I would relax myself while walking, and I would keep my body calm, unaroused, my mind concentrated on skillful themes. So the Buddha is showing us that rather than avoiding fear, what we do is we stay in whatever state, but then when the fear arises, then we change the body state by calming, soothing, breathing slowly, exhalation focus, softening the belly, etc. And then we extinguish the fear by additionally reorienting to safety cues. The Buddha continues, uh, my thoughts would be focused, directed towards skillful themes, such as karma. He reflects on how beings who act unselfishly, esteemedly, always arrive in good destinations. Well, at least that's what he believed. Uh, and he also would reflect on the four noble truths, which is that uh, trying to escape our fear, pain, anxiety makes it worse rather than facing it and observing it is the escape. So that's going to be the basis of our practice. We're actually going to uh, put in practice this fear uh, or uh, memory reconsolidation practice. Before we jump in, I'd like to also note that the work of Pennebaker uh, and, uh, down at the University of Texas, I believe, um, noted that when people write out their fears free without any kind of editing, just free associating on fears, if you free associate writing for 20 minutes a day, he noted a significant 
drop off of anxiety related uh, symptoms. So journaling is also a very good tool, but for now we're going to actively put into practice uh, the fear, dread, anxiety, um, um, unconscious memory extinction practices. So thank you for listening and find a very comfortable seated position, remembering that um, the uh, goal is to find a nice balance between states of ease, but also maintaining enough alertness or awake state of awakeness that we won't drift off. So closing our eyes, I'm going to take a sip of water so I can closing our eyes and reeling our attention uh, back towards a state of awareness where we are cognizant of uh, what's going on internally. And for this practice, we're going to start out just by resting our attention on sounds as they arrive at our uh, state of consciousness. We're simply going to listen to sounds arising and passing, practicing adding nothing to the sensations. What that means is when we hear sounds, we very often immediately try to visualize what's creating the sound. That's what the Buddha called Sankara, adding to an experience. But we're going to practice bare attention, which means we are going to simply rest attention on sensations as they arise and pass. So listening to the sounds of your environment with your eyes closed, as if you're hearing a recording from a different planet, or inversely, you could pretend you're a, a visitor from a different, different planet who's just arrived on Earth. You've never heard any of the sounds before. You have no idea what's causing or creating the sounds. You're just listening as if the sounds of this planet were uh, exotic, neither good nor bad, just a vast unknown. And not lingering on any sound. So besides my voice, you might be hearing sounds associated with traffic, cars, conversations, appliances, sounds of nature. And just keep bringing your attention or resting your attention, I should say, on sounds without adding any opinions, any views, any sense that this is a good sound or a bad sound, without any what we call aversion. Buddhism, any desire to get rid of certain sounds without clinging, without wanting other sounds to continue. And we'll just sit for a little while, just practicing keeping our awareness on sounds arising and passing. And if your attention begins to get lost in thought, no worries. This is a practice. So we're simply practicing, not being, we're not trying to be perfect. We're simply practicing how to bring our attention back without adding any stress or self-judgment.
trying to relax your body as you listen to sound so that it'll be easier to be with all sounds without having a reaction if the body is relaxed, soft, pliable. No clenching of the jaw, relax the micro muscles in the eyes, around the eyes. Opening up the chest by relaxing the shoulders. So now, while we still are aware of sounds, bring your awareness to sensations in the body, whether the breath or just energy moving through the body or sensations of comfort, discomfort, twinges, slight muscle spasms or all the non-volitional events of the body, feelings of lightness or heaviness, and bring the same quality of attention, non-judgmental, curious, not clinging or averse that you brought to sounds to now the body. Think of your body as a vast night sky of sensations like stars. And whether the sensations you experience are pleasant or unpleasant, just allow them to rise and pass. Without any commentary, keep bringing your attention back. If it wanders off, just go back again and again to both hearing the sounds from the world around you and the body sensations rising and passing in your internal experience.
not being involved, just being a neutral observer. Don't take anything, any sensation or sound personally. And then while we're aware of both sounds and body sensations arising and passing without any judgment or criticism or aversion or clinging, then bring into this open, spacious awareness, awareness of feelings or moods changing. Moods can be feeling bored, relaxed, feelings comfortable, uncomfortable, moods disappointed or excited. Shifting states of attention, attention becoming heavy, tired, or alert suddenly and jumping about. And just observing all the nonverbal aspects that are happening right now, the sounds, body sensations, feelings, and moods. And lastly, bringing in awareness now of whatever thoughts or memories, images, stuff that's being added. So rather than identifying with the thoughts and climbing into them and losing awareness of the sounds, the body sensations and the feelings and moods, just thoughts are just one more different kinds of clouds floating through the mind, which is a vast sky. So not reacting to our thoughts or memories staying outside them, observing, just like we stay outside and observe the sounds, the body sensations, feelings and moods.
keeping the exhalations very long, the breathing slow, the belly soft, so that when the body is relaxed, it's easier not to react to anything that's happening presently. Then allow all the sounds, body sensations, and feelings to slightly dim or shift into the background of the stage of awareness. What I'd like you to do is bring to mind some situation or uh, interpersonal event or something in your life that has a tendency or pattern of activating anxiety, fear, dread. The dread of losing one's job, relationship, disappointing a family member. or situations that activate this state of unease. And just hold an image in your mind or something that represents that anticipation, that unpleasant arena or area of our life. And then while you hold this, no matter what mood or emotional state that begins to arise, I want us to focus on keeping our belly soft, our chest open, our breaths very full with long exhalations. And if it doesn't feel too difficult, an unforced, relaxed Mona Lisa-like smile. So we're changing the way our body responds to this troubling topic in our life. Just changing, re-encoding, reconsolidating the memory by changing how the body responds. If you notice the theme isn't activating any emotions, try another theme. another fear. And while you hold it, just keep a very relaxed belly, soft belly, long exhalations, a smile. You can make the image smaller in your mind if that's helpful. If at times it becomes too unpleasant, Focus your attention on something in your environment that's relaxing and soothing. Then bring your attention back. Changing the way the body responds. The difficult, unpleasant themes, situations, people.
And now let go of whatever image or theme was we were using to practice with, and then just bring back attention to the most pleasant sensations in your immediate experience, whether it's a body sensation or a sound. Maybe the palms of the hands feel relaxed or the sensations of your feet resting on the ground. And we'll just conclude by reclaiming just the present state of mind. And so uh, in a moment, I'm going to ring the bowl. And whenever you feel like it, just take your time, open your eyes slowly.